One of the joys of having twin boys is that there's never a dull moment. And sometimes you come up with extra pieces of paper that you didn't have, but this time I actually came up with all the pieces that I needed, so I'm actually really happy about that. So, <laughs> let's go ahead and open in prayer, shall we? Gracious God, we come humbled in worship of you, knowing that you are worthy of worship, knowing that you've created all things. And God, even if we don't know you as well as we ought to, Everything that we look around and see is evidence of you. God, we have come to adore you in song, and we've also come to adore you in your word. So God, help us today to keep our attention, to keep our focus on you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We will be going through verses 10 to 14. So for those that aren't familiar with the Bible or want to try finding it in the Bible, if you open up your Bible in half and then you open it up in half again, you turn to the book of Matthew. If you did it perfectly, which is kind of neat. And I'm not going to forget my clock today. So, all right, because today's potluck Sunday, so we don't want to miss that. Uh, all right, so we're going to be going through verses 10 to 14. But before we actually dive into the verses, I want to I review a little bit. Because these verses that we're covering today are a set of one lecture that Jesus gives his apostles. So if they are one set, then that means that we should recognize that they're all, they're, they're all in the same vein of thought. So if we were to look at the beginning of Matthew 18, we would see that the disciples are arguing. What are they arguing about? Are they arguing about what they're going to have for dinner? No, they're arguing about who's greatest. And their argument is, is ultimately creating division in this group that Jesus has created. But Jesus, knowing exactly what he needs to do, gives them time. Gives them time to come to him and ask him about it. So uh, ultimately their pride's putting themselves, themselves in danger. And so Jesus works them towards a necessary state of humility. And in their selfishness, they, uh, they really began to essentially denounce the importance of one another, right? Because if I were to say, man, I'm the most important person in this room, that makes everyone else less important than me, right? If anybody were to say, I'm the greatest, it implies that everyone around them is less great. So Jesus sees that this is a problem, and he brings them a child, and the child is really a warning. It's a warning so that they can consider, uh, consider the problems they're creating and that they would humble themselves, recognizing ultimately their own neediness and their own problem with pride. Uh, and, and ultimately, I mean, from last week, uh, the, the point was that we, that we shouldn't be in danger of being divisive by causing people to sin. And that's, that's, that's a continuation of the point today. Now, this week, we get to cover the positive aspect of restoration. And next week, we get to cover the negative aspect of restoration. So uh, today is good news. All right. So 
Um, our text today, again, is carrying on the same discussion of these little ones. The little ones are believers. They're people who believe in Jesus. There are people who cause these, these believers to sin and, and stumble. And uh, today, Jesus gives this good news, this parable of which I'm pretty sure every single Christian at one point has heard of, but they've heard of it in reference to Luke 15. Now, the, the reason I mention that is because when we hear, hear this parable, it's going, we're going to go, oh, yeah, the lost, the lost. But that's not Jesus's point here. Jesus probably told this parable in two different settings. Jesus tended to reuse his teachings or recycle his teachings uh, as most itinerant preachers did at the time. We can rest assured that a lot of what we read in the Gospels, Jesus may have said several times. I mean, how do you preach to 3,000 people in a crowd and everyone hears you? Miracles. Yes, I get it. But, <laughs> but the point is that Jesus probably said the same things a couple times. If we were to turn to Luke 15, we'd find that the parable is in a completely different setting. It's, it's, and so therefore, its purpose there may not be the purpose here. I know I'm stepping on some toes, or at least some things that you've learned. Um, and actually, to make it even more dramatic, verse 11 is probably a scribal addition. It, uh, it doesn't appear in any of the older manuscripts. And so therefore, when you get to like the 1600s in the King James Version, they, they, they included it because that's what they had. They had the older copied manuscripts. So... Um, most Bibles will have a little footnote or like mine, it doesn't include it in the text, but it has it down below. So I'm going to skip verse 11 because I think that it makes the point that Jesus is making when I do. And so do most scholars today. So now we're actually going to read the verses because we haven't yet. You probably forgot or you fell asleep. So verses 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Now we're going to move through some of this quickly. Well, all of it quickly because it's potluck Sunday and we all want to get out early. But, but we're going we're gonna to move through this, this first bit a little quickly. Now, verse 10. See that you do not despise. That sentence is an overly emphatic sentence in the Greek. Jesus is trying to make very clear that this is a point that we ought to remember. And remember, if we, were, if, if we read verses 1 up through 14, the little ones refers to believers. Every single time. For instance, uh, verse 7 and on. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Now I just totally did it wrong. 
This is the problem with me using a different Bible to preach from. Uh, call it, uh, going to verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, so again, child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, and then ver uh, verse 5 and 6, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, or who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is good at images. But notice that term in verse 6, these little ones. Jesus uh, uses that same construction of a word in, in verse 10 when he says, uh, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So again, here we're talking about people who believe in Jesus. Little ones who believe in me. Little ones who believe in Jesus. So when Jesus starts in verse 10 with this overly emphatic phrase, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's choosing his words very, very carefully. Now, the word despise most of us know what it means to despise someone, to hate them, to really not like them, right? Well, kind of. Uh, it's the same intention in Greek, but we could also translate it as look down on, or, or show contempt for, or a deep-seated hatred. Have you ever known someone who hates another person who claims to be a Christian? Because I've met them. Usually something happens, right? Usually there's something that happens between these two people and there's some sort of a feud that starts and, and, and uh, it's always something really important like they bought the wrong brand of car uh, or, or, or maybe they just don't like how they decorated their home or you know, there's some, something really valid. That's complete sarcasm. Uh, something really valid that causes them to hate. And in that, that, that despising of, of the other person, they cause them to sin. They cause them to feel unwelcome. They cause them to feel like they're not important. Uh, they cause them to feel uh, like they don't matter to God for whatever reason. And I'll get to one of those examples in a bit. But, uh, but Jesus is being really clear. Do not despise one of these little ones. Now, what little ones are we talking about? Well, if we were to read just the verses before, it's the little ones who have been pushed out, who have been ostracized, who have, who have been made to sin because of the sin of another believer. Do not See to it that you do not despise these little ones, Jesus is saying. Listen, God's people will not always see eye to eye but they should also seek to not hate one another. If we take Jesus seriously, somebody who despises someone else is actually a murderer. In Matthew 5.22, he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Or in 1 John, uh, the Apostle John makes it equally clear. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
It's a horror or woe. For instance, when we read last week, the woe to uh, woe to the world, right? And woe to the one who who causes temptation to come, who causes sin to come. Uh, that word means horror or horrific. The situation is horrific. There's a whole section of movies if you, well, now you have to go to Netflix. I, I was about to say when you go to Blockbuster, but there's a whole section of movies dedicated to horror. It's supposed to terrify us. And Jesus is saying this, woe to the person who causes, who causes pain on another believer. A wicked person delights in seeing their enemies harmed, but it's a horror for a so-called Christian to enjoy seeing their brothers or sisters in pain. Now, I wish that I was making this sentence up, but I knew a person one time who was, I don't know, I, I want to say crotchety, but I really don't think that even begins to, to qualify this individual's issues. But uh, somebody got sick. Uh, this is in, in a church I was a part of. Somebody got sick, and it was kind of a grave illness, and it was, mar it was marching towards death. And I remember so clearly, I was, I, I was just, I was feeling pain for this person because this person had just had such a hard go of life, but God had been so gracious to her. And, um, and then this other lady comes up to me and she's like, did you hear about so-and-so? And I was like, I did, I did. And she goes, well, you know, this is God's judgment. They deserve this. Otherwise it wouldn't be happening to them. That's a sort of despising a hatred that is not becoming of Jesus's people. Now, the second half of verse 10 is, uh, is, well, actually, I just want to point out, Jesus alleviated suffering from those who did not turn to him. There were plenty who got healed by Jesus, who turned their back on Jesus, and Jesus suffered ostracization, uh, I can't say that word, ostracization, um, and, and he never delighted in the suffering of even the wicked. And it's graceless and unchristlike when, when so-called Christians do. Uh, Ezekiel 33.11 is a great example of that, where um, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. God is not happy. His wrath gets satisfied when he, when he causes the wicked to suffer. It's a good thing when he causes the wicked to suffer, but he doesn't take pleasure in it. All right, now moving on, verse, verse 10 again, the latter half. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is one of the weirdest sentences in all of the Bible where we are sure that Jesus must have said it, Matthew recorded it properly, but the question of what does this mean is debated. Uh, it essentially has two viewpoints. Um, one of them, all right, so two and a half viewpoints. But one of them, uh, refer, one of the viewpoints talks about guardian angels. And usually this, this has some root in some Jewish mysticism, but the reality is that that Jewish mysticism didn't exist until like the, the 1100s. <laughs> so Jesus is not referring to guardian angels here. That's not the point. So we're just, I'm moving past that. So there's two views. Uh, either 
When Jesus says, for I tell you that their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is, we're talking about believers here, right? The little ones. So these, their angels, are, it's either a figure of speech, uh, referring to when a believer dies, that their spirit is before the Lord. It's kind of like when Peter, uh, when Peter was not killed in the, in the book of Acts, and he gets released from prison, and then he goes, and he goes to another disciple's house, and he knocks on the door, and then, uh, then that woman cries out, uh, it's his angel. So we think maybe, maybe that could be a figure of speech. When people die, they don't become angels. That's not biblical. But maybe this is a figure of speech about their spirit being before the Lord. I don't think that's probable, personally. Um, most likely, what, what, what a good, probably half of the scholars out there believe this sentence to mean, it's that Je Jesus is meaning that um, the angels that minister to believers are always before the Lord waiting for their, their actions, to, they're waiting for their orders to go and minister to believers. But Jesus is applying this in the negative. He's applying this as a warning. So let me, let me, just, let me just say that this is not meant to be a comfort. This is meant to scare you. If you despise somebody else who may not be as strong of a believer, or maybe they're struggling in the faith, maybe you're just tired of, of having, to, having to deal with their questions, but they really do love the Lord, Remember that their angels who are before the Father in heaven are always ready to make intercession against you. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. And it should cause us to kind of be afraid for a second. Angels are soldiers. They're ready for battle. Do you want the Lord to send an angel to, to, to rebuke you for standing against somebody who's struggling? Hopefully not. Anyway, moving on to, to the actual parable. And I think this should give us a sense of, again, what Jesus is trying to say. Um, the parable is addressing those we may call backsliders. You ever heard that phrase? I've always, I've always loved the phrase backslider because it invokes this image of somebody like walking up a hill and they just lose their footing and they fall and they slide down. Uh, several years ago, I was, I, my, my buddies and I found a wall of skeet. I don't know if you know what skeet is, but skeet is like really thin rock. And it was just a giant mound of rock. And, it, and there's, this thing, there's this thing you could do called skeet sliding, where you go down the hill and you don't have anything to help you. So you kind of have to hop. And you look like a, like a doofus doing it. But if you don't hop constantly, you will literally be, be surrounded in crumbled rock and you're going to die. So my buddies and I were playing on this skeet, and, uh, and, and one of my friends didn't want to go up the actual path, and so he, he was like, well, I can climb up it, and so he starts scrambling up the hill that we'd been sliding down, and he kept backsliding. He kept coming right back down, uh, because he couldn't. He couldn't make it up this hill. This was an impossible hill. But this parable is, is describing not the lost, not the unsaved, as it is in Luke 15, 
It's describing the people that are, that are caused to sin by so-called believers, most likely wolves, and, and then they, 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 they wander off for some reason. Again, listen, listen to this parable. Listen to the way Jesus says this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So in this image, this sheep belongs to that fold. It's supposed to be in that pasture. It, it was in that pasture and it's wandered off. And then in verse 13, Jesus goes on. And if he, the shepherd, finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So one sheep wanders off from the fold, already within the flock. And then the, 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 re the rest of the sheep stay put. If we think about it in terms of that, we realize that this, this is already a little one. As Jesus already said, this is already someone who is a believer and, and they've left. Now, Jesus doesn't say that the other sheep are biting this sheep. They don't say that this is the ugly sheep. They don't say this is the black sheep. Or he doesn't say any of that. What he says is that this particular sheep has wandered off. It's gone the wrong way. It's off. It's, it's out of the meadow. And if we can understand that, then we can understand that this is not, this is not somebody who's harming another person or another believer. It's describing someone who's harming themselves. It's like a child who hangs out with the wrong crowd. And the crowd is enticing them to sin. You want to bring them back. Somebody, please go rescue that guy. Don't, don't, let him, don't let him keep doing that. Or, or someone who's convinced themselves that certain activities are not sinful. I mean, there's a host of examples coming to mind. But, but, but uh, they start wandering down a slippery slope. And they're no longer just walking up the hill and falling down. They're just straight up sliding down the hill. But Jesus describes this caring shepherd. And the way he says it is just, I think it's brilliant to me. Because Jesus says, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What, what, what would a caring shepherd do in this situation? Sheep wanders off. What would a loving shepherd do? Now, if you're a businessman, you read this and you're like, that's the dumbest thing ever. He's leaving his sheep unattended. What if a lion comes in and ravages the, the flock or, a, or, a, or a, a pack of wolves come in, comes in? Care for the 99. Who cares about the one that wandered? This shepherd is making a really bad uh, choice in the eyes of business by going after the wayward and leaving the obedient. But he's a good shepherd in the, in the eyes of the Lord and in the Lord's household. Why do I say that? Well, sev several, several examples. The New Testament is ripe 
with how to deal with division, but it's also ripe with examples of why it's good to restore someone. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. So watch your own heart. Because some people like to be those that go after uh, the wayward or go after the ones they think are wayward. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then uh, his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. But going back to that verse one, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spiritual spirit of gentleness. The, the point is that it's good to restore the wanderer. It's good to restore the wayward. This shepherd in the parable is doing a good thing by going after that one sheep that it's, that's gone off. Or James 5, 19 to 20, James writes this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders, hold on, that sounds familiar, kind of like it's the same concept here, kind of like James knows what he's talking about. Anyway, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's good to chase the wanderers. It's good to chase the ones that, that you see in sin. And sometimes, gosh, I, 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 I have in my mind just a doofy looking sheep, right? Like sheep don't normally look straight. They look off on both, both uh, like they look off on two different directions. But imagine a sheep that's just kind of walking around with its tongue hanging out. And maybe its eyes are cross-eyed somehow. And it's just wandering off. Yeah, that face, you did it. So, <laughs> so, so imagine a sheep that's doing that, that's wandering off. Those are the sheep that require special attention. Right, Inara? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. You were making a good face. But, uh, but those are the sheep that need to be guided back. They need that spirit of gentleness to go, no, 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 please, please come back to the fold. But then there's other sheep that when you try and pick them up and you try and take them back, they bite you, they poop on you, they, do, they kick you, they don't want to be rescued. But it's good to chase after the sheep that are wandering. But what about the sheep that wants to come back? What, what does that sheep think? When, it, when somebody goes and they rescue them, what, what is the sheep? How does the sheep respond? Well, Psalm 119, 176 says this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. See, somebody who's backsliding wants to be rescued. They may not know how. They may not know why. They may not even understand why they wandered. But like the psalmist here, they plead that God would come after them, that God would send someone to rescue them. 
that God would be gracious enough to, to seek after them, restore them, and, and, and stop them from their wanderings. Now, just as, as an encouragement to you, sometimes they don't want to be rescued right away. Sometimes you go after someone who's wandering and you try and restore them and they bite back. Don't stop. Don't stop. But we don't know when we go after someone who is wandering whether or not they'll repent. I wish I could give you a formula. I wish I could say, here's how you do it, and, this, and the person will always be restored. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that for the countless parents that I've talked to who have rebellious children who have gone off to go serve their, their, their passions of sin and passions of the flesh. And, and I wish I could counsel good words to them. And what's really sad to me is almost all those parents say the same thing. They say, well, you know what? They gave their lives to Christ at a youth concert when they were 13 and a half years old. And so therefore I know they're saved. And I can't help but say, that doesn't mean anything. I'm sorry. I wish there was a formula that said, this is how you know when they're going to repent. But frankly, we're like, we, we people are like the shepherd in the parable. We read these words, and if he finds it... And we read that word if, and we go, yeah, yeah, if. What's the chance of him finding it? The sheep is astray on the mountains, might have fallen down a ravine. It might have even climbed up the mountain where the person can't even get, because believe it or not, sheep can actually jump. They can wander really far. And we read these words and we go, if he finds it, Lord, please let me find my wandering sheep. Please, God, let me restore this person. Please, Lord, let me be like the, the, the shepherd in the rest of the verse that says he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Lord, please. That shows care. And that is the heart of somebody that needs to shepherd, that needs to go after the sheep. But no matter what, we need to find comfort in the remainder of what Matthew records, of what Jesus says. Verse 14, so, meaning therefore, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now there's two, in theological terms, there's two wills of God. And unfortunately, they use the exact same Greek word. There's the wishes of God, as in God wishes that none should perish. And then there's the will of God. That means God, God has decreed it. It will happen exactly as he ordains it. Which one is this? Is God helpless to restore the wandering sheep? You know, if you've read The Shack, there's this uh, image um, uh, of, of Jesus and the main character in the boat. And there's a fish that's swimming beneath. And Jesus looks at the fish and he says, uh, you know, I love that little fish. 
I sure wish I could catch it, but it just keeps getting away. I sure do love that little fish. Is that how God is? John 6:39, Jesus says this, but this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This will of God is not the wish. It's the will of God. Take comfort in the fact that you may have a family member, a friend, a pal, a neighbor who's wayward. But man, I'm telling you, if they're a little one of the Lord, if they're a, if they're a believer, they will be brought back. And you may be an instrument of grace to them. Using the same motif of the shepherd, Jesus says this in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And then he goes on to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. There's no doubting in that. Jesus will restore his flock. There will be one flock, one shepherd. And those that wander may yet be returned. Do you know any wandering sheep? The author J.R.R. Tolkien, which by the way, I had to Google. I've always said Tolkien. My entire life, I said Tolkien, and I decided this morning to Google, how do you say Tolkien's name and find out that it's actually Tolkien? Now, I'm still going to say Tolkien because Tolkien sounds weird. Anyway, the author J.R.R. Tolkien wisely wrote one time, he has a wise wizard in these stories. His name is Gandalf. And, uh, and he, he has this, this kind of poetic like reflection proverb. And one of the lines that he says, it's in uh, Fellowship of the Ring, is not all those who wander are lost. I imagine he wrote those words reflecting on Jesus's words in Matthew 18. Perhaps he had some names in his head with hopes that they might be restored into right fellowship and a right manner of walking in the Lord. And I imagine you all have names like that too. And you're praying and you're reaching out and you're hitting a wall and you're getting discouraged. But do you despise them? Do you despise the wandering sheep? Oh, I just wish they'd return. Bothers me so much that they're living this unrighteous life. Oh man, if the Lord would just take them, it would be better. Then I wouldn't have to deal with them. Do you carry hatred in your heart for their betrayal of you or the Lord? Or are you like the kind shepherd in this parable who finds the desire to go after them, no matter how hard it is? Because friends, it's good to seek to restore a lost brother or sister. They may have wandered off decades ago. And maybe right now you find in your heart this compassion building where you're like, maybe I should reach out to, to my aunt who 
uh, reads prosperity gospel books. You know, whatever it is, what, what, whatever, whatever it is where the Lord is working in your heart, where you're like, there's, I know a wandering sheep and, and maybe Lord, you want me to go after them, go after them and carry in your mind a remembrance that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ just might speak to them. And if he does, they are his sheep and they will listen to his voice. They won't resist but they'll fall unworthily into his mercy. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that there are those who wander, and it feels like the vast minority, Lord, just thinking of the people that, that are coming to mind for me, but the vast minority of those who wander are, are probably not going to be restored. But Lord, I don't know. I don't know. Only you do. And God, I thank you that you do. And I thank you that you will restore those who are yours who have wandered off. Lord, I already have a list of like 10 names, real people that I wish would return to you. And I pray that they do. God, let us be an instrument of your grace in the lives of the wandering sheep. May it be so, Lord, that they come back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If I might also encourage you with this, I think we have all at one point in our lives been the wandering sheep in need of restoration. Maybe you can think back to the time when the Lord brought that to you. Remember the graces that he brought you, the humbling that he brought you to. And remember that you might be able to be that to someone as well. Go in peace, saints.